0: Before we turn to Luke chapter 2, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father and our God, indeed, as we come to you today, celebrating the birth of Christ, reflecting on the words of the angels, glory to God in the highest, peace to men on whom your favor rests. Indeed, we would say with the hymn writer, there is no peace on earth, for there are wars going on around the world, and even in our homes and in our city, there is turmoil turmoil and there is conflict. Even in our souls, there is pain and sorrow. And so, Father, we come to you recognizing that all of these realities do not deny the angel's song, but rather highlight the reality of our need for you. The fact that we live in a world cursed by sin, and so everything that is not right around us are the fruit of sin. Many times even our own sin. And so in the midst of that, we cry out to you and recognize that we dearly, deeply need a Savior. And so in the midst of these dark and grim realities, we thank you that we can have joy because our joy is grounded not in our circumstances. Our joy is grounded in the relationship that Christ has brought about by his death and resurrection. We are reconciled to God who reigns and rules over all so that no matter what, he gives us joy unspeakable and full of glory because we are rightly related to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so we can have hope, a hope that peace would reign one day because it is a hope that is grounded on the redemptive accomplishment of Jesus Christ that the baby born in Bethlehem was the king crucified in Jerusalem who rose again and is even now reigning at the right hand of the Father and is coming again to consummate the victory that he has achieved and so we have that glorious hope of real peace shalom of right relationships, of everything being the way you designed it to be. And we thank you that we have this hope of peace because of your love demonstrated on the cross of Calvary. And so we could say with the Apostle Paul, he who spared not his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him freely give us all things so that we can be sure that there is absolutely nothing that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so, Father, as we go to your word today, we ask that your spirit would guide us, would direct us, would point us to the glory and greatness of Jesus so that all of us might come to him in faith, in adoration, in reverence, in submission, that we may know him more fully for our good and for his glory. This we ask in Christ's name. Amen. So Luke chapter 2, please. Luke chapter 2, we'll be considering the whole passage now we lit the advent candle of love today and I think there is no greater expression of that love than the son of God becoming a human being for the specific purpose of laying down his life for us that's the story that Luke tells in his book That being said, I I don't know if you recognize this, but Luke chapter 1, which we've been in for the last couple of weeks, is pretty hard to believe. Angelic visits and seniors and virgins getting pregnant sound really far-fetched, don't they? But that's why Luke emphasizes in chapter 1 his careful historical research and embeds his narrative in history, using historical persons as signposts. Because he is positive that the events he recounts really took place. In Luke chapter 1, Herod the Great serves as the historical bookmark. In Luke chapter 2 and verse 1 and 2, here's his historical bookmark. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Now, I hope you realize that that's a very different beginning from once upon a time or in a galaxy far, far away. Good job, son. Luke's account is neither fairy tale nor science fiction. He claims that it is the truth. It is a historical account told through the lens of God's redemptive purposes. And that's what makes Christianity different from all other religions. It is more than a philosophical or moral belief system, it is a faith centered on a real person whose actions in time have determined the future of the world forever. And Luke's historical reference doesn't just serve to assert the truth of his narrative. Just as in chapter 1, he invites us to compare Zechariah and Mary, here in chapter 2, he sets up a contrast between Caesar Augustus And the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's read chapter 2, verse 1 to verse 7. Luke chapter 2, verse 1 to verse 7. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all the world, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, we've heard these words so often. Like, I grew up in church, so I've probably heard this 52 times every year or more. We've heard these words so often, we probably don't realize how surprising and subversive these words were in their original context. James Edwards points out, Augustus was the first emperor to encourage a cult to deify his name and reign. According to legend, Augustus, like Alexander the Great, had been miraculously conceived by a serpent. An inscription discovered at Prien and dated to 9 BC hails Augustus as a god whose birthday signaled the beginning of good news for the world. Another inscription from Halicarnassus, now preserved in the British Museum, celebrates his reign. These inscriptions identify Augustus as God, Son of God, and Savior. And they associate him with peace, hope, and good news. Significantly, these titles and terms are applied to Jesus in the angelic announcement to the shepherds in verses 10 and 11, declaring Jesus to be the divine alternative to the imperial ideology and, cult. and that's why Luke would highlight Joseph's connection with David in verse 4. He is showing that Jesus, not Augustus, is the true king who fulfills God's promise to David. That he would have a son who would reign forever. And would have a kingdom that would outlast the Roman Empire. And here's the irony. God actually uses Caesar's pretensions to greatness to accomplish his purposes. In verse 1 and 2, Augustus is said to have ordered a registration. It was a census for taxation. This was Augustus' way of flexing his imperial muscles at his subjects. But this decree paved the way for Joseph and Mary to be in Bethlehem, where she gives birth to Jesus fulfilling the prophecy of Micah in Micah 5 verse 2. The point is, for all of the preening and posturing of Augustus, he's just an instrument under God's mighty hand. And that's our comfort as exiles in this world, a world that seems random and filled with evil. Our God is in control, and he has sent his son, the true king, into the world to save us. And so it's only fitting that angels would announce the birth of the Son of God incarnate. They are announcing nothing less than the invasion of God's kingdom in the person of Jesus, the Son of God, the real Savior who is Christ the Lord. But here's what's surprising. The news, this great news of great joy comes not, to the temp- not in the temple, but the shepherds out in the fields. And it doesn't go to the priests, nor to the Roman governor, nor to Herod. It comes to shepherds. Now, it's not that God isn't media savvy and didn't know about Facebook. Rather, God is deliberately turning the world upside down, or again, more properly, Right side up. He brings peace to those on whom his favor rests. And he has graciously chosen the lowly things of this world. And the despised things. And the things that are not, as Paul would put it. Friends, this, this is us. Our God who is in control and is working out his purposes, cares for ordinary people like you and me. And our God is so concerned for the marginalized and broken, He became a human being for us and for our salvation. And that is God's unconditional, self-giving love on display. And even more amazing, God humbles Himself to invade the world as a normal human baby. A baby so ordinary that the angels have to identify him to the shepherds as a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger so that they would know when they found him. Otherwise, they wouldn't be able to recognize him. There was no glowing nimbus around him. This is a baby. Maybe looked like Winston Churchill. Imagine that. It is truly good news of great joy. But here's another surprising irony. This army of angels singing glory to God in the highest announce peace and not war. They sing glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. See, the Romans boasted of their Pax Romana, the Roman peace. But that was merely a ceasefire enforced by the fear of Roman might. Basically, nobody stood against Rome because if you stepped out of line, Rome will crush you. The Pax Romana did not bring harmonious relations among people because it could not address the roots of conflict. Our conflict is rooted in our alienation from God that alienates us from one another. Ever since the garden, we all want to be as God. We all want to be in control of our world. As Woody Allen would say, the heart wants what the heart wants. We want to get what we want. And we can talk about win-win solutions. But deep down, what we really want is a win that is just a little bit greater than the other person's win. And so any compromise solution would only bring about a temporary ceasefire, not harmonious relationship. What we need is a Savior who will change more than our political or economic situation. We need a Savior who will transform our hearts, who will transform our desires and affections. That's precisely why God became man. So that he may die for us and rise again to give us new hearts that delight in God. And our mutual delight in God is what unites us with one another in submission to him. So the true peace begins with being reconciled with God. That's why the angels proclaim peace to those on whom his favor rests. And so the shepherds go looking for Jesus. They find him. And according to verse 17 and 18, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child and all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. Everybody wondered, but they couldn't understand how this baby would bring salvation. And so Luke begins to flesh that out. Beginning in verse 22, as Jesus is presented at the temple. That would happen about eight days after, eight to 12 days after birth. And so his parents offer a sacrifice of two birds. No, not two turtle doves and a partridge and a pear tree. It's two birds indicating that they did not have much money. They were poor people. But in their poverty, there are also faithful Jews who obey God's law and recognize that Jesus rightly belongs to the Lord, according to verse 23. And while they're at the temple, they are approached by another faithful Jew named Simeon. Verse 25, according to Luke, this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. The consolation of Israel, according to Tom Schreiner, is the comfort and joy to come when salvation is realized. It's the equivalent of what Anna was looking for, the redemption of Jerusalem. And Simeon guided by the Holy Spirit, takes Jesus in his arms, the way many of you take Olivia into your arms, but not because he was cute, but because he wanted to bless God. And he said in verse 29 to 32, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. That is the song that is known as Nunc Dimittis or something like that. It's Latin. I don't know Latin. The point is he was singing of Jesus. This baby is God's salvation. And just like the prophetess Anna, Simeon had been waiting for the Messiah, for God's salvation. And he and Anna are included in this account because they fulfill the dual witness that the Old Testament requires. These two witnesses demonstrate that the covenant promises of salvation and redemption would be fulfilled in Jesus. And here's the great part. He is described as a light for revelation to the Gentiles. So that we realize that this salvation is not restricted merely to the Jews. He's given for you and me also. So that realize this, God was thinking of us when Jesus came. And Simeon, having blessed God and saying, God, I can die now. Because I have seen your salvation in the person of this baby. He goes on to bless Mary and Joseph. And you notice there's a shift here in verse 33. You notice how Mary and Joseph are now defined by their relationship to Jesus. They are described as his father and mother. And Simeon tells Mary... Behold, verse 34 this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. You can see the theme of reversals going on, continuing from the Magnificat in chapter 1. Simeon recognizes that Jesus would turn things around, but sadly, He will not be welcomed by everyone, even though he brings salvation. Indeed, he would be a sign that is opposed. He would endure significant opposition. But that opposition would not change the identity and purpose of Jesus. It would simply expose the hearts of people. Notice what he says. So that the the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. As James Edwards would say, Jesus will not happen to be an occasion of division. He is appointed for that purpose. The prophetic word causes offense and division and the word became flesh, no less so. How you respond to Jesus reveals the state of your heart. Jesus is the dividing point. How you respond to Jesus determines, in fact, where you spend eternity. And since Jesus would be the point of division, you can understand why Mary's soul would be pierced with a sword. She would be pained by the rejection of Jesus. But at this point in time, she couldn't understand what Simeon meant. And in the meantime... The child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. But about 11, 12 years later, Mary would get a taste of that sword in her soul when Jesus was 12. They'd gone to Jerusalem for the Passover celebration. We don't know whether this was Jesus' first Passover celebration in Jerusalem. We don't know whether Jesus had gone to Jerusalem with them every year. What's important is that after the feast, they went back to Nazareth together with friends and family. They were traveling in a caravan. And both Mary and Joseph thought Jesus was with them. He's got friends. We've got family. It's all good. We haven't seen them the whole day. He's having fun. But when they stopped to camp for the night, much to their surprise and horror, Jesus is Missing. Now, any of you seen Home Alone? (laughs) You can imagine how Mary and Joseph would have felt when they realized, "Ah! we left Jesus behind. (laughs) And so they head back to Jerusalem where they find him in the temple. And you can imagine their frantic search right but in contrast to their frantic search look at chapter 2 verse 46 and 47 Jesus is calmly sitting among the teachers listening to them and asking them questions and all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers now those of you who are parents you don't really care Right? That your kid is amazing people. <laughs> Mary didn't care. She was furious. And so she says to Jesus in verse 40, 48 Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your mother and your, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. How could you do this to us? And here we see and hear, Jesus' first recorded words, verse 49. Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Now please understand, Jesus was not being defiant or disobedient. Jesus was reminding his parents of his true identity. As he stood at the cusp of manhood. He was reminding Mary and Joseph that he had a higher calling. He had God's mission to fulfill. Again, James Edwards, Jesus must align himself with God's purposes over against claims of his family. That must is a divine obligation And though he humbly submitted himself to his parents when they went home to Nazareth, he was absolutely focused on his mission given him by his heavenly Father. And so we are told that Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Now, Mary's distress at Jesus being left behind in Jerusalem was just a foretaste of that sword in her soul. Because many years later, Jesus' commitment to his father's purposes and that sword that would pierce Mary's heart would intersect at his crucifixion. As David Garland would put it, the child born in Bethlehem to parents subjected to Roman tyranny will ultimately challenge the existing political order and create an astonishing reversal of authority and power, not through violence, but through obedience to God and the giving of his life. See, at the cross, Jesus would be about his father's business. He would accomplish God's mission by obeying his father to death he would bring salvation by offering himself as the sacrifice and substitute for the sins of his people. He would reconcile us to God by that sacrifice. So that as the Apostle Paul would say, for our sake, God made him who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And in so doing, in becoming sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him, He brought about peace. Friends, this is the glory and greatness of Jesus. And so will you not come to Jesus and know God's salvation? The wonder, the greatness of Jesus is that unlike Augustus, a sinful human hungry for power and prestige, Jesus Christ, our Lord, being God, humbled himself by laying down his life. Friends, this is love beyond compare. It is love that demands our soul, our lives, our all. Let us pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for Christ, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. But instead, he humbled himself and made himself nothing by taking on the form of a servant. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself even further to become obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. O Lord, we rejoice at such love. We are humbled by such goodness. For we recognize that if the price of our sin was the death of God's own Son, then how truly sinful we must be how horrible we must truly be. But there we also see the wonder of his love. That he would care for wicked people like us who are worthy only of his punishment and care so much that he would humble himself to become a fully human being so that he may die the death that we deserve, suffer your wrath that we deserve, so that we may be reconciled to you. Indeed, Father, we can't but say thank you. And we thank you then that because Jesus humbled himself and fulfilled the righteousness that you demand. Therefore God highly exalted him and has given him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess in heaven, in earth, on earth, and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Oh Lord, I pray... That each of us here would, here and now, acknowledge Christ as Lord to your glory. So that as we celebrate Christmas, we might truly celebrate aright. For we celebrate him who is our King, our Lord, our Savior. This we pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.